Hello and welcome to this episode of TASME Time, Talks in Medical Education. I'm Dr Rob Cullum, a GP trainee and podcast lead for TASME. In this episode, we pick up on the topic of mental health and well-being in clinical education. Katie and I had the pleasure of spending an hour with Dr Clementine Wyke, a psychiatry trainee based in London, and Dr Anna Melvin, a postdoctoral researcher based in Exeter. We discussed some of the shocking statistics from the 2019 BMA report, Caring for the Mental Health of the Medical Workforce, as well as their subsequent mental wellbeing charter. We explored Clementine's personal affinity to the topic and why she cares so much about it, as well as Anna's fantastic theoretical insights from both her own PhD and generally from the world of occupational psychology. We know that some of the topics in today's episode may be challenging and we've included a list of organisations who offer support in the description as well as at the end of the episode. So why don't you make a cup of tea and join us for this episode where we will explore how we look after the mental health and well-being of our learners. Hello and welcome to um, this evening's episode of TASME Talks in Medical Education. We will be talking all about mental health and well-being in clinical education this evening. Um, We are joined by two fabulous guests um, who have really interesting backgrounds within their own personal and professional lives um, relating to mental health and well-being within clinical education. Um, first up, we have Clementine Wyke. She is a ST5 trainee in general adult and old age psychiatry in Southeast London. She has been involved with medical education since she was a core trainee, mostly within the undergraduate sphere, and has previously undertaken a medical education fellow post and completed a postgraduate certificate in clinical education at King's College London. As a psychiatrist, she has always had an interest in mental health, but became particularly interested in the mental health of doctors after she experienced an episode of depression herself. She now talks to medical students about her experience with the aim of opening up the conversation about mental illness within the medical profession. Welcome, Clementine. Hi. And we're also joined by the soon-to-be doctor, Anna Melvin. So Anna recently completed her PhD at the University of Nottingham where she explored medical students' well-being during the transition through clinical training using realist methodology. Anna's background is in psychology, and before completing her PhD, Anna worked for an occupational psychology research consultancy, working on many different projects, including several in medical education. Anna is now working as a postdoctoral research fellow at the University of Exeter on the Care Under Pressure 3 project, which is a realist evaluation of interventions to support hospital doctors' mental health and well-being at work. So welcome, Anna. Um, so first of all, um, would you mind um, both telling, uh, telling us a little bit about yourself and your career to date? Um, I'll go first, as I was introduced first. Um, hi, I'm Clementine. Um, Katie did a great job of introducing me, so I won't reiterate everything she said, um, but I can confirm it was factually accurate. Um, I So, yes, I'm a psychiatry trainee um, in London. Um, I would say that I, I went straight through most of my training, um, apart from taking a break between core and higher training um, to do a job in medical education. Um, 
And a lot of the medical education work I've done up to this point has been around promoting psychiatry to um, both medical students and also to pre-medical students to um, GCSE level school students, um, for which I've been running a psychiatry summer school for several years. Um, and so I've always had an interest in this topic, um, uh, both in terms of medical education, but also in terms of mental health. Um, but as as said in the introduction, um, I did definitely have a bit of a turning point in um, a couple of years ago when I myself developed um, depression and I was surprised at how difficult I found it both to recognize it within myself but then to seek help um, even as a psychiatrist um, who you know feels comfortable talking about these topics um, I think it's quite often said that the um, patient is the one with the disease not the doctor um, and I think that is uh, something that's quite ingrained in us from medical school um, and so it can be quite difficult to counteract that and I think so one way seems to be to talk about it openly to provide role models um, for being able to talk about it and to seek help and to show that it doesn't affect you being able to be a good doctor um, so that's that's why I now also think about this topic in particular. Thank you very much, Clementine, and loads of food for thought there to think about. Um, I yeah, I already picked up on a few things that I definitely want to hear more about soon. But over to you, Anna, to introduce yourself and yeah. tell us a little bit more about yourself and your um, career to date, if possible. Yeah. Um, so my background, as you said in the introduction, is in psychology. So I did um, my undergraduate psychology degree. And then um, from that, I was kind of interested in clinical psychology. So obviously, uh, the mental health side of things from that. Um, however, as I kind of worked in that area for a bit, I was more drawn to occupational psychology and um, kind of say so that's about people at work and organisations. Um, so I did a master's in that. Um, and then worked for um, Work Psychology Group afterwards, who are um, like a big uh, research consultancy in that area. And a lot of the work they do is in um, the medical education area. So that's how I got interest in um, the kind of medical education field in particular. And um, but the kind of well-being side has been I like my master's uh, research project was on kind of burnout in um, doctors. Um, so has kind of been an ongoing thing in the research that I've done um, and then for my PhD um, the opportunity arose to do that and um, uh, so I did it with um, Rakesh Patel, Pam Hagen and Jill Doody at uh, Nottingham and they kind of had quite big free reign to kind of do what I wanted in that so I was interested still in that kind of the burnout and resilience and those kind of things but actually after reading about some of the positive psychology um, literature like Martin Seligman's work um, and some of one of his books I was really interested in that kind of positive side of well-being because often there's a focus on the kind of burnout and not that side so that's really where I focused in my research and looking in particular at the transition through clinical training and how the experiences that students have in that um, affects their well-being and then um, since finishing my PhD I've um, recently started at Exeter so the Care Under Pressure 3 project which is um, obviously related to this area and so looking at hospital doctors in particular and the support in trusts um to help with kind of mental ill health and well-being um and yeah evaluating what's going on and how those can be improved 
that's fantastic. And I feel really lucky that we've again got two fantastic guests that have a real interest in this topic. That's there's an academic aspect, but there's also that personal aspect. Um, so I think you've both given us really a great sounding board to jump, I guess, straight into to the topic. Um, so thinking about um, the BMA research and, and that charter, I, I think the statistics around the risk of burnout were shocking. 80% of respondents to the BMA survey being identified as being potentially at high risk of burnout, 40% suffering from a psychological or emotional condition at the time they filled it out. What is it about the medical profession and, and potentially training in particular, which might be contributing to these high numbers at the moment? And I wondered, I guess it'd be interesting to hear both your thoughts from slightly different perspectives. Um, but maybe Clementine, do you want to go first? Um, yes. I mean, I'm sure Anna will tell us what the kind of research shows us, which will be really interesting. I mean, I think um, from my kind of personal experience of going through training, um, I think there is something potentially quite problematic about the way we organise training, um, particularly now where it's very fragmented. You're frequently changing um, both, you know, locations, teams, um, and there's a, I think it engenders a sense of not um, belonging in anywhere in particular. Um, and I think people, so I think that's an issue. I also think that sense of not belonging is encouraged by difficulties getting the small things about your working environment right. Um, so, you know, difficulties getting leave, being able to park from calls, having somewhere safe to put your belongings when you're working, um, somewhere to rest. Um, and I think in addition, obviously, um, issues with, you know, high workload when you are training and maybe impacting on how you can seek training opportunities is difficult. Um, and on calls are often another issue in itself in terms of the um, difficulties this can create in your kind of personal life and creating that distinction between work and home. Um, I think there's obviously this sort of elephant in the room, I think now is COVID um, or in the post, what people like to call post-COVID world, which obviously this report and the charter was written pre-COVID. Um, and I think COVID has perhaps brought in sharp focus many of the issues that were there already. Thank you, thank you, Clementine. And I just wanted to echo from that that trainee perspective. Um, I think that resonates with. I, I don't think you could find a single trainee that hasn't had an issue with parking or contracts or um, just um, workload on calls. Um, I think you'd be hard pushed to find an individual person that would say no. Everything's been absolutely perfect, and it's those external pressures that. Um, that are outside of your own capability of managing, which may make you feel worse than potentially you already were. And I think another aspect that I think I'd like to just like add in there, if that's okay, is actually the job is inherently stressful. It's, um, it's difficult, it's challenging, it's highly rewarding, but also we are being um, told stories from our patients that are distressing and difficult and especially for yourself in psychiatry um it's a, you know those are difficult things to deal with and with all those 
different facets and we most of us hopefully as doctors and as healthcare providers are empaths we're empathetic people and that might predispose us to taking on too much as well which can obviously affect well-being mental health but thank you thank you for sharing your personal experiences as well there um Rob, did you have anything you would like to share from a trainee perspective? I'm not pushing to you to the end, but I'm just excited to hear what you're going to say, Anna, from the research perspective and all the actual facts and see whether this is reflected in your data as well. But Rob, do you have anything you'd like to share? I was going to say the other thing that I think that potentially focusing on that bit about why trainees are at highest risk is that as on top of everything we do in terms of doing the job, I think there we have two things one we have the absence of something protective in that we're not necessarily part of a team in the same way we don't have that longer term protective we work as a team we're in this together we're such a transient population and i think that's particularly true obviously in general practice training where other than in st3 you may well be doing four month rotations similarly in the foundation program similarly in in things like imt etc and i think that lack of being put in a more stable work environment must be we're missing a trick there i think i don't know how we make that work better but i think that absence of that stability and team is is a real issue i think the other thing that automatically springs to my mind is that actually we most of us end up with more or less a full-time clinical job plus the other burdens of training in terms of portfolio management exams etc that we have to do more or less alongside that job and whilst there is some study leave it probably isn't enough to truly um, manage those things and so on top of having a job that's difficult and learning which probably adds some pressure anyway you then have all of that additional burden that goes with it so to me I think they're the two things that potentially make trainees at particular risk but yeah like you I'm really interested to know what Anna thinks on this yeah so um yeah definitely from what you're saying aligns with like the theories of kind of burnout and things um and then like the theories that I drew on in my research more about like the well-being side as well so um like one of the um from like the theoretical perspective really aligns with what you've all said so like the job demands resources theories used a lot in um like occupational psychology um it starts out as a burnout theory and then talks about kind of the strain side of like job experience and then the kind of um, motivational side as well as two kind of different pathways and you have this interaction between like the demands of your job um so all the things that you talked about so medicine's inherently a demanding job if you even if it was the most perfect kind of environment that you were working in with the cognitive and emotional demands involved in that role and then um, on top of that you also have additional demands like high workload if there's staff shortages all these extra pressures in the environment that you were talking about like not being able to get a rest and having like on calls and all these things and then you have um, job resources which help um, counterbalance like the job demands so those would be things that help you kind of either meet those demands or um uh, like kind of help you grow as a thing so kind of make you able to kind of deal with the challenges that your job has that isn't as stressful and it's more motivating um but some of the, one of the things that struck me when you're talking is about um like the lack of control so control is like a really important resource that people have so when you're in training and you're always rotating around and you or you don't have um you can't control like when you're working or when you go off and things so that's going to be 
um, adding to that kind of more difficult experience. And then um, also like the lack of belonging. So like the social support is a really important resource. And if that's um, that was one of the findings in my PhD as well, that even in medical students in those early stages and you're going through clinical placements is just not having that sense of belonging. Um, and then uh, the other aspect of the theory is these like personal resources. So that's more like kind of psychological resources that you have and that can help deal with those. So then like the experience, you're more likely to experience burnout if you kind of don't have enough resources to match uh, like the kind of demands of your role. Whereas on the other side, if you even if you have a demanding role, but you've got a lot of resources to help you deal with that, then it can actually become really kind of like motivating and engaging um, and kind of challenging in a good way rather than stressful. Um, so that's kind of like one kind of from a theoretical perspective. And then I was just thinking about um, from my PhD. So I was looking at medical students and definitely um, so not even like in, not in the postgraduate training area, but the similar experiences were happening with these kind of short placements where students don't have like that sense of belonging in teams or even sometimes it varied quite a lot but like often didn't have someone even to kind of recognize that they were going to be there and then feeling really uncomfortable so it doesn't not really conducive to like having a positive experience um and then yeah, and definitely the kind of lack of belonging. So one of the theories I drew on in my research was um, self-determination theory. And there's like these three basic psychological needs um, that everyone has to have like good well-being. So and one of them is um, relatedness, which relates to like belonging. Um, and then also kind of uh, the other two are autonomy and competence, um, which also I found through different situations are quite challenging often for people to feel those. So that impacts on the well-being. Um, yeah and I think like in terms of like training and trainees um, there was um, there was a really interesting paper a few years ago like with Will Bynum and some like someone else that talked about um, like the risky business of learning and how just learning itself is a very like challenging experience and if you haven't um, if you haven't got the environment that's kind of supportive of that experience and it's adding additional challenges then that's going to be kind of make it even more um difficult and you haven't got that so they were talking about like psychological safety and how depending on the kind of culture and things um that can affect that so definitely the kind of theory side of things aligns with the kind of experiences that you've spoken about I think it's really interesting actually it's nice it's not nice in some ways to hear, but it is nice to hear that uh, like already um, our experiences are very much reflected in that. And I think at the same time, I suppose it, it, it reflects that the literature is in quite a good place already, that this is a well understood phenomenon that actually immediately those things tie together. So I think that's been a really helpful overview. So thanks for that, Anna. Yeah, I think it's, it's something that's been talked about for a long time. And I think we probably all all reflect that and it sounds like you've been working within this field for a quite a while now and quite extensively and I know from personal experience we were writing essays early on at medical school about sort of well-being within the profession and I think it was well understood that doctors experience high levels of burnout and um, mental health issues and suicidal ideation and suicide um, from years and years ago I think that leads us on quite nicely to the second point of discussion um 
in terms of we know that this is an issue this is a huge issue and it has been an issue for a long time um one of the interesting points um within the um, bma well-being report and charter showed that um postgraduate doctors in training so trainees or junior doctors were least likely to know what support was available to them and how come that we've known all of these issues for so long yet our workforce and our students um are still struggling to find that support so what can we do at an undergraduate and postgraduate level to better equip this workforce to know when where and how to seek support and that's open to everybody again I mean I'm I'm happy to start um I mean I think I think partly that we are often told um I think as trainees and I feel like probably as medical students um that you know you can seek support um but often it is one slide in a lecture at the beginning of your first year and is then not sort of mentioned again. So I think you have to keep telling people repeatedly throughout the their time at medical school because people's needs and awareness of, of that will change and it needs to be reminded. Um, so I think that's, that's one thing. I think the second thing is also fine to know to you know, know where you can seek support, but to actually feel able to seek that support is quite a different thing. So I think it needs to be. I have been wanting to to do a, a kind of uh, a talk for medical student and the say in the case of this is how you can seek support, but also these are people, including other medical students, who have sought support, and it's okay to do that I think so I think there's something about potentially using role models and I I, it can't just be one individual I think it has to be different people because role models only work if you see someone who looks like you who chimes with your experiences um so I think that needs to be utilized um more I think I think the other thing is about thinking about things like confidentiality. So I think when you are, this perhaps is is true whether you're a medical student or a trainee, if the support somehow seems to be linked to the people providing your teaching or to the trust within which you work, often people are going to feel quite reluctant. It needs to be felt that somehow there is a, a, a separation between where you can seek support and the rest of your training. Because I think however much you tell people that it won't have a negative impact on their training or their, you know, license to practice or any of these things, people are still anxious. So I think you can tell them, you can role model it. And then you also need to provide sources of support that they feel comfortable in using. Um, I mean, I think there's also, there, there, yeah, there are other things I think which are important, which I think will will come on to later. Um, but I think I'd probably start with that. Yeah, I think it's um, definitely really echo what you say, and um, I think reflecting on kind of why that might be is something we've been doing in our projects around 
and trying to think about who we can um talk to to get in our sense and then who's going to be aware of what's going on in different trusts and stuff and I think as you were talking I was thinking about some of like the kind of wider issues that might kind of feed into it and one of the things when I was doing my PhD was like um trying to think about the like wider context and why some of these situations arise and um it was from kind of being a bit like an outsider kind of looking at the profession it's quite interesting to kind of observe um like elements of the like medical culture and how um those might affect and there's some interesting um literature on some of that um and one of the things that I was um yeah had read about in in the literature was around this kind of individual um there's a kind of narrative of like individual responsibility for these kind of issues and actually um but the theories and like my theories that I developed in my research very much is about the interaction between the individual and the environment so if you aren't dealing with the kind of environmental issues then um that's going to be more um not really necessarily going to kind of resolve the situation and so thinking about like trainees um and if you're placing kind of the emphasis more on them to seek support but they're like as you were saying saying before they're like um transient and not necessarily built into teams and you haven't got that um sense of maybe knowing the kind of structural and the systems and what support might be available um and then if it's then thinking about kind of um that culture and um the kind of if like the difficulty seeking support if you have this kind of focus on the individual and also the kind of elements of the medical culture about that kind of self-sacrifice as doctors and I think it um um maybe we talked about that already about the kind of uh like the patients are like the other and then you kind of so the difficulties kind of um changing and like making that breaking down that stigma about mental health even though it's discussed a lot um actually kind of putting that into the systems and how that kind of comes about is like a different um issue and needs kind of we need to work out how to do that in some ways to um break down that kind of barrier between kind of the experience and then kind of knowing what would be helpful but then kind of how to actually um yeah get people the support they need and then also kind of creating that kind of culture where being supported is part of that rather than um kind of something that you need to kind of sort seek help for your problems and that's kind of the environment helps people to do that more I think one of the things that's really obvious that's come out of what both of you have said is that actually the barrier is probably not in knowing what's out there but actually feeling able to access it and thinking about stigma in particular and and again, coming back to some of the data, 20% of people avoid seeking support from their medical school or employer. And a lot of that can be potentially with stigma when struggling. And I know, so I had some time off work with my mental health um, a couple of years ago now. And I know that when that happened and I needed to speak to my clinical supervisor about that, there was a lot of stigma. And immediately his response to me was, but your, your clinical work's okay. And, and like there was somehow this, uh, like, I don't know, there was there was stigma and there's also this barrier of, well, you can't possibly, if you're managing to survive and work safely, that must be enough. Everything else must go. And I, 
the more I think about it, the time I don't think I had enough insight to quite see how how the logic of that just doesn't work. Um, and, and we certainly wouldn't ever think about that when we think, I certainly don't in my clinical work as a GP trainee, think about that with my patients when they're struggling with mental health. I just wonder how do we break down some of these barriers for our learners, but also how do we support our educators to to be better than that? I think just because what you've said has made me think about something from my own experience. Um, and we, we've talked about um, burnout. And I certainly think for me, I probably was burnt out for 18 months, two years before I became unwell. And I remember I had an experience whereby I was working in um, A&E um, and as, as a junior doctor and um, I had a bit of a meltdown in A&E and became really upset and I spoke to my consultant um, who is also my clinical supervisor who was a really lovely man who just wanted to help um, but and you know he recognized there was something wrong and he he said to me as I you know sort of sat sobbing in his office oh but you've never shown any sign of weakness before and at the time I took it as a compliment because I was like he thinks I'm good at my job this is great and for me crying at work at that time was absolutely a sign of weakness and a sign that I was doing you know I as the individual was not doing something right but I think you know, that a bit like your experience, Rob, is emblematic of most supervisors, most trainers, I think genuinely want to help and be supportive. But they have, like we all did, grew up, as it were, within the medical culture in that, as, as you know, Anna said, the, the patient is other. And we as the doctor have to somehow be better, be more resilient, be stronger than the patient because the patient comes first um and I think when you we all slightly absorb that culture as you as you go through medical school and training and some of that is necessary you it's it's necessary in a way to form a medical self in order to be able to cope with the distress that we often have to deal with at work you have to be able to distance yourself but at the same time, it becomes a problem when you might actually need help um, and to be able to accept that um, and for the sort of trainers around you to somehow to be accept that. And I think the, the BMA r- report that I read said something um, kind of right at the beginning, which I thought was quite powerful, which it said, experiencing poor mental health should not be associated with failing as a doctor. And I think that's really important. And often that is how it feels. It feels that you are somehow failing if you are unwell and you particularly if you need to take time off work. I found it really difficult to do that. And I I don't know about you, Rob, but I, I really struggled with taking, you know, time off work. And I, you know, needed, like most doctors, to be told this is what you need to do. I think it's very difficult to accept that so I think the question was how do we change you know educators or how do we 
educate the educators to be able to approach these topics better. And I, I, I don't think there's a quick fix. I don't think there's it's um, something that's going to be solved. But I think starting to talk about it. And I also think we've got a new generation of people who are junior doctors and who are now becoming consultants who perhaps feel more comfortable with these things. Because I often think that some of the issues come from people actually feeling uncomfortable talking about these topics and not quite knowing what to do or how to help. Um, so I think I think there's, there's that. I don't know if, Anna, if you wanted to say anything on this topic. Yeah, I think that's really interesting what you're just saying. And I think in the BMA report as well, I think if I recall correctly, there was some figures as well about the type of help people seek at different age groups and like the older people maybe wouldn't seek uh like kind of talking to people wouldn't be the kind of um like main way that they would seek help so maybe as the kind of you know as in society there's more kind of openness about mental health and more discussion of that but that takes a while to kind of trickle down um through the kind of like into people's kind of way that they behave and um comfortable how comfortable they feel doing things um I thought it was interesting when I spoke to medical students in my study um there was quite a variety of kind of perspectives on how um like important looking after yourself was um as to being a doctor and there were certainly um like a group of students who were kind of had seemed to kind of recognize that that was really important to them and like being a good doctor wasn't necessarily like getting the best grades possible it was getting being like good enough obviously to know all the things you need to but actually not necessarily striving for like the highest possible grades if that meant that you can um do all the other things in your life that were important to kind of look after yourself and keep yourself well so I guess um yeah kind of as you were saying about bringing that it's going to take a while to change that mindset and especially if that's maybe um kind of more challenging for people that have grown up um in kind of uh like a society where that hasn't been as um like commonly discussed so I guess um yeah just like kind of trying to bridge that openness and I thought it was also really interesting what you were saying um about like um having to get to the point almost where you were like not performing well where it was recognized that there was a problem because I think one of the things that I was thinking like trying to reflect during my PhD and like that research was thinking around students is like how many students are kind of going through medical school like performing absolutely fine and doing well in their exams but having kind of a horrible time or not like the best time that they could so then for learning and kind of and then if you think about the wider context the medicine and kind of issues of retention and people um not wanting to stay in the profession or not satisfied and not being satisfied um of enjoying it um then that's kind of challenging even if people haven't got to that level of kind of um like burnout or something but if you're not really like engaged and enjoying your work then that's going to have like other implications for people's careers and um I think that's why I kind of felt it was important in my research obviously um like burnout and those kind of issues are important to tackle but also we need to think about not just that kind of negative side of the experience but also what's on the positive side because if you kind of 
reduce the rates of burnout and okay that's good but then if what have you got left if people aren't actually still enjoying their work or feeling like they want to stay in the profession and finding that rewarding then that's also potentially problematic in other ways in terms of kind of longer careers and staying and enjoying it and things so um yeah just trying to think about well-being in a more complete way I think I think that's really interesting coming from that perspective Anna and it's possibly not something I've given enough thought to but thinking about how if your profession is just your professionals your colleagues are maybe drifting along feeling quite neutral towards work which I think I don't know about yourself Robin Clementine I see a lot of that actually people not really enjoying work is common and I think there's always an element of that isn't there any job you're not going to enjoy every nine a hundred percent of it but it's exceedingly common and even if we don't pathologize it and say this person's burnt out or this person's you know really got bad work-related stress I think that is very very common and actually instead of this um we've spoken about this sort of onus on the individual to seek help and to remind individuals to seek help I think you in terms of the theory that you've unpicked actually we need to be looking at um the collective and their interactions with the environment and actually should we be doing more preventative strategies and it sounds like that's some of the stuff that's come out of the well-being charter as well which leads us on quite nicely um to that sort of side of things so the charter suggests that it is essential that we have this supportive workplace culture which focuses not only on awareness which we've discussed and somewhat prevention but sort of innovation and support as well when needed so from your experiences what could this look like in practice and I'd, I'd be quite keen to hear um, personal examples professional examples things that have worked well things that have worked less well and then from the research and maybe from um, interviews etc and what, what's going on really out there because I think it sometimes you feel like you're in your own little silo and you know what's happening near you but what's happening elsewhere that was a million questions rolled into one. So <laughs> lots of things to think about there. Um, please feel free to share. Um, yeah, I think in terms of thinking about um, how to be more um, like proactive in helping and preventative. So, um, yeah, this is something um, I've been thinking about recently for uh, the project that I'm working on. And then also, so in the... Um, like the stress literature so it talks about these kind of um like one way you can think about the types of interventions that might be available are kind of um is like interventions that are focused on like preventing the stress so they reduce or deal with like the source of stress either like reducing the demands of the job or increasing the resources that are available um so those things might be like some of the things that you talked about at the beginning of the podcast like having rests in times and somewhere to go um and then like or creating more control or um saying that you can um giving like shift information much further in advance so people can plan the rest of their life around it um or kind of proper inductions um where people going back to like the a couple of questions before maybe for like trainees who are always rotating around and to help make them aware or kind of facilitating greater team working those kind of things um, and then a second group are around um, kind of helping people deal with stress. So in like kind of from in an ideal world, obviously, um, there's 
uh, aspects that you can prevent of being stressful about being a doctor but there's also aspects of being a doctor that will be stressful potentially because of just the nature of the job as we talked about already so then um, kind of developing people's own personal like psychological skills to deal with stress would be um, more like in that area and then the other kind of area of interventions are focused on more like treatment once people have already experienced quite adverse like outcomes from the experience of stress and things like that um but kind of so that's like the ideal situation of you would have kind of all of those levels of interventions and they would kind of feed in but with um like the prevention being um like obviously like ideally kind of reducing that as much as possible but actually if you look at like the literature in medical education and stuff a lot of the focus is on like the individual level of intervention and more around that kind of dealing with the stress um so which is fine and those interventions obviously have a place and are important so for example that would be things like mindfulness um potentially um like stress management training those kind of things um which are are really important and people do need to have those skills but in the absence if it's the focus is only on those and that can be problematic as well because if the you you could maybe have like the best psychological resources but if you're in a really resource poor environment where it's really demanding over time those are going to get like depleted and then you need help from the environment to kind of build them back up again um so it needs to be kind of multi uh pronged approach i guess um and then i guess um yeah that was and then so kind of yeah going back to that kind of more as we were talking about before like proactive approach rather than just kind of trying to be more proactive and design that into the kind of acknowledge the in um, the environment and kind of taking people's perceptions of what's going on uh, like their own ex- the experience of employees and doctors and trainees about what's going on to help identify maybe some of those kind of organizational level things that could be done to help make um, the kind of experience of work a bit better. I, I think it's really, really key what you've been saying there, Anna, and I'm really relieved that the literature is reflecting that in terms of the demands, but also the resources and move trying to shift that onus away from that individualist approach I think um I'm sure Rob and Clementine have both experienced these um sessions where it's like on mindfulness in the middle of the day when you've still got your bleep and it's it's a really busy difficult shift and um, maybe you couldn't park and maybe you're on call later that evening and it's completely inappropriate and I I understand the evidence behind mindfulness. I practice mindfulness. Um, I'm completely on board with it. But actually, it's taking into consideration that multifaceted approach. And I think it's really excellent that the the evidence reflects that. And the well-being charter does also reflect that multifaceted approach as well. Um, in in terms of any examples as well um, of things that's... Ha- Sorry, I'll let Clementine share, but... Also, it would be great to hear some actual real life examples from an undergraduate and postgraduate spheres, particularly within medical education, on what's being done well and maybe what's not being done so well, but maybe don't name names. <laughs> I would, can I just come in there, Katie? Because actually one of the things kind of related to that that's already gone through my mind is if I think about my actual most intensive rotor I've ever worked, most stressful job, um, 
probably some of the worst things I've ever seen um, was my A&E job as an F2. But actually, the team were incredible. There was such camaraderie within the team, which I guess it's really interesting, isn't it? Because that's that's how people manage to... Because there's a large group of doctors and nurses and other healthcare professionals who thrive in that A&E environment. But part of the reason they thrive in it, I think, is because often the resource in the, in the context of having a really supportive team and working together is there. And certainly, I'm a relatively extroverted person. I really like working in teams and I get an awful lot of my energy from working with others. And I think A&E does that so well that that's thinking about how we can make it better. If we could try and take some of what A&E often does well in that proper team atmosphere that, that's there interestingly often best overnight it would be my reflection if we could try and bottle that and and pop that into every clinical environment and really get that kind of multidisciplinary team i think it would be amazing i'm also conscious that i had clearly a particularly good a and e experience because i know there are a lot of people and i'm sure some of our listeners um will reflect back on time they've worked in a and e and think that i'm absolutely crazy for talking so positively about the experience but um nonetheless that I think for me is is always what I look back on. I very quickly because I'm aware that I'm talking too much. I reflect a similar experience, Rob. I've loved my time in the emergency department. I locumed there for two years because of that reason and those reasons. I think they do some things in terms of well being and mental health incredibly well. They reflect. They they know it's a exceedingly difficult job. There is access to more resources in terms of. Um, professionals like consultants within the department where I worked at least that really understand the value of sort of um, breaks rest facilities a, a good rotor rotor in advance flexible working um, debriefing um, and a really good induction all of the things that we've mentioned before I, I had that those experiences in A&E but also that thing that Clementine mentioned earlier in terms of positive role modeling there feels like in certain departments there is less of a hierarchy and I felt that in my A&E department and some of the senior consultants were very very honest and open about their experiences of burnout their time off work and how they have returned to work and how they manage that and I think that power of being able to stand up and do that is infinite and I, I hadn't really reflected on that much until Clementine mentioned it earlier. And actually having those, putting faces and names to people that have experienced some mental ill health or burnout, have taken time out of work, it's very powerful, isn't it? We would do it for career planning. Why don't we do it for our work-life balance and our own personal well-being? Um, no, I mean, I think I think a lot of what you're, you're saying, I absolutely agree with. I mean, I would put in a... Um, uh, Another perspective for A&E, which is that I completely agree that it's n it's often not the busiest jobs that are the most difficult, because if a job is really busy um, and stressful, but there's a great team and you feel part of it, then actually it can often be a really enjoyable job, um, whereas if that's not the case. Um, but I think it's a bit like what Anna said it kind of needs to be a multi-pronged approach in the sense that what works for one person doesn't necessarily work for anyone else. Um, and I, I, in lots of respects, I much enjoyed my time in A&E, but I, for example, found the, the shift work, the sort of working at 
weird times of the day and night really difficult. Um, so I think everyone is kind of different and it's about recognising what works for you and also by employers or trainers work realising that um, what works for one person doesn't work for everyone. So I completely agree with Katie that mindfulness is, is great in many respects, but mandatory mindfulness is is not not a good thing. Um, I also think there's, in terms of what Anna was saying about the kind of space for reflection and Katie mentioned debriefing, which I think is really important after a difficult scenario, but I think also more in a ongoing way. Um, there were two things I wanted to talk a bit about. One, which is um, clinical supervision in the sense that in psychiatry, um, we don't do everything brilliantly, but one thing we do do is that it's very much embedded in the training that you have an hour a week with your consultant um, and that is accepted that that's what you you have and that can be used for whatever you want but it should be used for you rather than the consultant wanting to discuss you know the patients on the ward or whatever it may be um, and I think that level of support is important um, I also think and again one of those things that doesn't work for everyone but can be good for some people is um groups such as Barland groups. So I'm a lot of people have very diverging views about whether they like Barland groups or not. Um, and whilst recognizing that, I think for some individuals it can be a really supportive space in terms of often creating peer support from a group of people and a space to both share experiences but also to talk quite openly about how things might make you feel um, and to have that kind of um, what's the word supported um, by the group um, so I think I think that can be um, beneficial um, I said I had two things I remembered one more which is also about um, training so um, I think it's increasingly um, in many specialties but not all that you can now work part-time if you want to so you don't need to it used to be you had to give a reason, you know, ill health or childcare. You don't have to give a reason. You can just work part-time. Um, and this is certainly now true in psychiatry. And I think that's really important and certainly something that I took advantage of, that when I came back into training, I worked 80% for a year and and have now gone back up to working full-time. And I think having that sort of ability to be flexible with your training um, is really beneficial and helps to keep people in training. Um, so that those are some of the things that I wanted to talk about. I think you've you've beautifully segued into my next question there. Um, in terms of thinking about peer support and and potentially mentoring as well. Um, thinking about both, but like those those experiences in psychiatry. And I, again, I know that. They're really important things, things like the balance group, things like supervision in the psychiatric sense. Um, and I think uh, the document talks about how they're both invaluable possible options for support. And, and I think it's really good to hear that they're, they're fairly embedded in psychiatry. How else might they work in practice? And I guess particularly thinking about the undergraduate world, um, how do we get mentoring and peer support 
and do it well in undergraduate education? I mean, I'm going to let Anna answer this one because I think, but, but but the one thing I did want to say before we kind of perhaps move away from the topic was that um, many medical schools now run violent groups um, for medical students, um, which again is not for everyone, but I think it's an important way of perhaps trying to introduce um, aspects like clinical uncertainty and the difficult emotions our patients generate in us and how to kind of work with that as a, as a doctor um so i just wanted to add that in before we moved away from the topic yeah and i think um yeah so from my speak so my phd i spoke to um uh like students in the kind of penultimate and final year of middle school and then also educators with a variety of different roles and that kind of the as we've already spoken about that sense of belonging and like the peer support or kind of support from um, educators is really, really crucial to well-being. And one of the big challenges, as we've already said about the kind of rotating around placements quite frequently and some of the um, kind of environmental challenges of how the kind of system works. So not having um, like that firm kind of set up anymore or kind of and the changes to team working in the NHS meaning that students don't often didn't have that like continuity of contact or consistency of the same people so they weren't ever necessarily um not weren't ever but in a lot of cases they felt like they weren't known by anyone and they didn't know anyone in return so they haven't really got that sense of um kind of belonging and I think if you think about some of like the social learning processes of becoming a doctor and stuff that is a really key aspect of becoming like taking on an identity of like you have to kind of be feel like you're part and like um in the um oh just let my mind like communities of practice and the larva and venga theory um in terms of kind of being part of the team is a really crucial part of that alongside the participation um so I think some of the examples where it seemed to work better were um, when students or the students had better experiences when they felt like they had that con- that contact with people. So either where there were like clinical teaching fellows that they saw quite consistently and people with like time in their jobs um, or who had a real interest in teaching and were able and kind of made time for students or had time um because some people obviously would like to do that but that's challenging given the pressures everyone's under um so I think that was if it was kind of like engineered into the kind of environment then that was helpful because then students had that um contact um consistently and then I think it was also helpful for the educators because they felt like they knew students they knew I think one of the challenges was if you don't if people only have a student for a day or something you don't really know what you can do with them and um so it's quite challenging on both sides um and I think um yeah so those were some of the ways um they also found when students had other students on a placement that they even knew or they kind of I don't think necessarily had to know them but I think that was even more helpful than that sense of like uh extra I don't know what was kind of like gave them a boost to go and do more challenging stuff so like or feel more able to go and like put yourself out there if you've got like you know your friend's going to be there later to kind of like talk to if it's um kind of all goes a bit wrong or is a bit challenging so that definitely that sense of um 
uh, like peer support was really important. And I think some of the students that were having maybe more difficult times often were those who maybe didn't feel like they fit in with the peer group or didn't have that sense of friendship there. So um, I don't know how necessarily you would like what you could do to do that. But that's definitely those elements um, are really important. I just wanted to sort of like add to the undergraduate perspective from both my obviously personal experience, but also from experience as a lecturer um, working at um, on on an undergraduate program. Um, and I think that this um, push towards including violent group or violent type groups in an undergraduate sphere is really, really important and the value cannot be us underestimated. Um, the university that I worked at, we didn't necessarily have barlink groups, especially when I was training, um, but we had um, mandatory um, small groups that we had to attend um, throughout the duration of the whole undergraduate programme. And they were reflective small groups to not talk about the clinical decision making, um, but to talk about the hidden curriculum, essentially, of medicine. And that happened regularly at regular intervals throughout the entire duration they were mandatory attendance so you were assessed on attendance and you it was actually assessed as well which begs some questions so in terms of but assessed solely on professionalism so different elements of professionalism in terms of contributing to the groups um and it it was I think many of us in the earlier years found them a bit tedious potentially and didn't really see the full value but actually once we approached those latter years um were really um worried about losing those networks and losing that support network they're always facilitated by a clinician as well which I think adds value um to that role modeling sort of side of things um and I think many training schemes would benefit from that and Clementine's mentioned um psychiatry um having sort of mandatory supervision violent groups in primary care it's also um I don't I know it's mandatory where I am but I don't know whether it's mandatory elsewhere but we run um bi-weekly um sort of small groups and they are for discussions around clinical cases but mainly the reflective side of things and the personal journey we felt with those cases rather than the clinical management and I think there is scope for more discussion around personal issues as well which might not happen as frequently there's definitely some good good sort of sources of practical examples of what's going on and people do seem to be trying more to implement things any any other thoughts from you Rob or anybody else I mean, the first thing I was going to say is that definitely those small groups that you've just talked about don't exist in my GP training program. So it's definitely that's definitely got a variability. Um, I'm conscious that some of um, or a lot of what Anna said uh, and a lot of Anna's participants, I'm sure, in her PhD work will have been very similar students to the students that I worked with in my. So I'm sure there'll be an overlap in our perspectives there. Um, but I certainly think that I saw that students were much so I worked in a site that students didn't necessarily want to um, be sent to and it had relatively few students and there was a big difference when suddenly they were able to pick to have gone at least in a pair and that made a massive difference to how the students then felt and how they felt supported I 
I'm also a really big advocate for the role of clinical teaching fellows in undergraduate education because very much my view of my role um, where I worked uh, relatively well as far away as far as hospital placements at the time were from Nottingham. Um, for me, my role wasn't just there to provide education. My role was as much and if not perhaps more so about providing that support and that being that person that people could talk to when they were having difficulty and because we were a team of teaching fellows actually it also gave the students the choice because I'm conscious that not everyone sort of coming back to I can't remember who said it earlier but about having that kind of rapport and relationship probably is really important there um so I think I think it's having your peer support is really important and making sure there's the opportunities to do that and perhaps making sure students have the opportunity to do placements with someone they know and not just randomizing them, particularly where you've got smallish placement sites sometimes. But I think also acknowledging that that near peer support and, and teaching fellows in the advent of often post F2 or relatively junior teaching fellows or medical education fellows, I think is really good because I think that near peer support from someone who is maybe five years older than you, but still feels much more attainable than, for example, a consultant and having that close relationship is a real positive. So I suppose that would be the other thing I would reflect back. So I think to to draw um, this episode's um, episode to a close, we're going to task you with a very difficult question to end on. Um, so if you had a magic wand and could do one thing to improve the well-being of medical students, that's for you, Anna, or trainings, Clementine, what would it be and why? Um, so I think for medical students, obviously, it's quite tricky to do the one thing because it kind of depends a lot on the like the student and the environment that they're in. Um, but I think it definitely goes back to what we were just talking about is that in finding some way to always have um, both like the peer, that to create that sense of belonging for them. So you have... Um, like the consistent teacher and a consistent peers and then other health professionals that they're working with in the team um, on their placements so that they um, kind of feel comfortable in that situation and um, then that like facilitates their learning because they've got someone who can guide their learning and however is appropriate for their stage of training so quite a lot if they're like first placement or kind of more in a kind of uh, kind of reaching their learning goals at a later point um so they can really then participate and feel comfortable to do that so that you can get that experience that's really beneficial for learning without it being either kind of really uncomfortable and awful until you kind of get known by someone or, or you kind of students end up like kind of maybe removing themselves from that environment because it doesn't feel that helpful for learning um so i think that's really important um yeah, I think just creating that, yeah, sense of team and belonging. Um, so I would, for trainees, um, I would say parking. Um, and I know this is a bit, it's not necessarily um, applied to everyone, but I think is emblematic of, it's that sense of feeling valued. Um, and I think it's when the, people get the small things right um, in terms of, actually appreciating that sometimes the job we do is difficult 
but things like that can make a big difference. And I mean, I will say full disclosure, I did recently receive a parking ticket for parking in the Encore Doctor Space. So I am feeling a little bit aggrieved about this subject. Um, but I think it, it's, it's those small things. And um, yeah, it's amazing the number of gripes you hear on, on Twitter about issues of parking, um, particularly for Encore. So I, I think it's, I think every time something like that comes up, you just, it kind of detracts from that sense of feeling valued for, for doing your job. So, so that's what I would say. Thank you. Resources, increasing resources and reducing demands. That's what I'm going to take away from this. And I think, um, thank you for shedding light and sort of boxing all those ideas into some clear-cut categories and for all the theory and thank you so much Clementine for being so open and upfront and honest about your experiences as an individual human and as a professional psychiatrist as well I think it's been a highly enlightening and interesting journey and I've I, I, I've learned a lot already and I've got a lot of things to think about um, to take with me personally but also into my workplace as well so thank you both Anna and Clementine and obviously thank you Rob um, for your co-hosting abilities as always. Thanks Katie and uh, yeah I'd just like to echo that I think that's been so helpful and I agree with Katie that I think the two take-homes for me are one thinking about it in that really like there's the two aspects um but I think the other thing for me is that actually lots of little things can make a difference. We don't always need to think big. That's the other thing I would take away from this. And I think your your magic wand thing right at the end there, Clementine, actually um, typifies that so well that sometimes some of the smallest things can make the biggest difference. Yeah. And that if we all thought about those small things and did them well, the big things probably would be much less necessary. Mm. That's brilliant. Well, thank you both for joining us. Um, and... I, I'm already looking forward to a further conversation and see where we can take some of this. Oh, thanks very much for inviting us on. Thank you. Thank you very much for joining us today. I wanted to say a special thank you to our guests, Dr. Anna Melvin and Dr. Clementine Wyke, for their personal insights and in-depth knowledge of this subject. We know some of the topics we discussed today may have been challenging for some listeners. If you are struggling and need support, please consider contacting your medical school or training organisation. Other sources of support might include the Practitioner Health Programme, Occupational Health at your employer or your GP. Mind and the Samaritans also have some excellent resources. As always, I'd like to say thank you to the rest of the TASME Time team my co-host, Dr. Katie Stevenson, the pre-production lead, Dr. Oliver Mercer, and our post-production lead, Dr. Asim Javaid. I'd also like to thank Dr. Cleone Pardo for all of her support with publicity and to Amlunya, who made our theme music. Finally, thank you to everyone on the TASME committee who supports with the production of this podcast. I've been Dr. Rob Cullum. You can find out more about TASME, ASME, and our many other groups at asme.org.uk. And make sure you follow us on Twitter at tasme underscore UK. Join us next time for our next episode, where we will be discussing decolonising the curriculum as part of ASME's Black History Month work. Thank you for listening to TASME Time, and we look forward to seeing you again soon. <laughs>